This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for Tuesday, January 31st, and that is it for January. Today's weather forecast, a mixture of sun and cloud, maybe a flurry this morning. The high only minus two degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, Toronto is hiring 50 private security guards for the TTC. Number two, Mike Schreiner adds to the drama by saying, okay, he'll think about running for the Liberal leadership. He'll join us at 7.20 this morning. Number three, Ontario nurses begin talks with the province today. Number four, the BC drug decriminalization experiment also begins today. And number five, one of hockey's all-time greats, a somewhat controversial figure, Bobby Hull, has died. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Welcome to your Tuesday. Normally I'd say happy Tuesday. I'm not sure how happy everybody is. There seems to be a general malaise out there. And um, that's certainly something we're going to be digging into today. I'll tell you, we've got one uh, crackerjack of a show today. Uh, For one thing, on the political side of things, uh, Mike Schreiner is actually going to be appearing on the show at 7.20 this morning. He's the Green Party leader. But as you may know, he put out a statement saying, okay, I'll think about it, about leading the Liberal Party. And I guess I'm, you know, Mike Schreiner's a smart guy. I'm not exactly tipping my hand if I tell you some of the questions I have for him this morning. But I just don't see how this is a win for anybody. I mean, frankly, I'm a huge fan of Mike Schreiner, and I think he probably would make a fine liberal leader. But if you're considering abandoning the political party you've been sitting for and leading for, I think, since 2009... And going over to a party that has lost two election cycles is going to and is going to be full of a bunch of very indignant would be leaders. Um, it's instead of people always talk about win win. This strikes me as a lose lose. But we'll get to that. I saw Mike Schreiner yesterday at the funeral for David Onley, and we just talked momentarily outside of the church. I said, you're still going to appear with us tomorrow because I was somewhat surprised. He kind of went silent yesterday and then he put out that statement. But that actually, the statement came after he and I talked. And then I said, listen, I don't want to talk shop here. You know, this is about David. So I'll see you tomorrow or we'll talk tomorrow. And so we will at 7.20. And just as a sidebar, a beautiful celebration of David Onley's life. And it was uh, held in this gorgeous cathedral-like building. It's actually a Baptist church north of St. Clair, and I've never been inside. And you know me, I cannot walk past an open house of worship without poking my head in, but I've never actually tried the doors on that one. But it was David Onley's home church. It's where he met his wife, to whom he was married for 40 years. Uh, It was one of those wonderful services. I'm sure you've been to funerals that are presided over by somebody who's always consulting their notes to remind themselves of the name of the deceased. And in this case, uh, I mean, the minister has known David for years. As a matter of fact, he's riding, owing to an injury, he's riding around on a former scooter that David Onley gave to him that had belonged to him. Uh, So it was an incredible celebration of life. And I had never met David's three sons, but they sure did him proud. For many Ontarians, our first memories of David were watching him in our living rooms, on the television. If dad can do what he's done as a disabled man, what can I do as a fully able-bodied man? My dad's greatest wish was for all disabled people to have the ability to fully participate 
in the social, cultural, and economic life of Canada. My present mobility challenges are small and temporary. I can't pretend to even begin to understand what David must have gone through every day. It was a beautiful service and an awful lot of people there. I mean, David Onley, I've uh, shared with you that uh, I think he's possibly one of the nicest people I have ever, ever met. And we had time to sit together. We were never pals. I don't want to engage in that journalistic political thing. My friend. Um, but I did have a chance to, to know him uh, from time to time personally and uh, certainly working on a couple of documentaries. But what an incredible life when you consider the trajectory from reporter on radio to reporter on television and next thing you know, and whose genius idea it was, I guess one day I'll get to the bottom of it, that he become the lieutenant governor of Ontario because he was good at it. And as we've seen with a certain federal governor general, sometimes it doesn't quite work out. But I won't dwell on it too much except... First time I've ever been to a state funeral as a guest. I've covered many of them as a reporter. And uh, you're supposed to arrive in reverse order of importance. So uh, some of us media people were there at 9.30. I didn't go at 9.30. Uh, by the time I got there, it was, it was almost like a party, honestly. And I guess, you know, all of these politicians and the current lieutenant governor and media figures and all these people all together getting a chance to talk and exchange messages and pay respects and then also be there for David Onley and his family. But listen, um, major news stories to look at this morning. Uh, Toronto is going to be deploying 50 security guards on TTC property. And so this is in addition to the deployment of 80 police officers. And as we talked to the chief last week, he was saying, listen, it's not 80 police officers every shift. It's going to be 80 police officers who are going to be brought in and uh, deployed at various times on the TTC. But now we are supplementing that with 50 security guards. A lot of questions I hope to ask and answer today. And since the mayor is listening right now, I'll probably find this out in minutes. I'm curious as to whether these private security guards are armed. Also be curious about the budget, whether it comes out of the city budget or it comes out of the policing budget. Certainly the police chief was saying that the deployment of 80 police officers who are off duty, so they're being called in, right? So this is extra work for them and it's extra budget. Um, he said, we have the money. We'll tell you it's an operational expense. Uh, we have the ability to respond to the needs of the city uh, on these kinds of things. Of course, we monitor that very carefully throughout the course of the year. Right. Uh, this will be a pressure. Because 80, yeah, 80 police it, officers doesn't come cheap. This will be a pressure that we are going to have to uh, keep track of, and we'll certainly be leading that discussion um, with our budget team, um, and we'll see how it impacts our budget over the course of the year. So that was Myron Dimkew, the new police chief who dropped in for a combination of getting to know you and what the hell is going on interview last week on our show. Meanwhile, some of the rifts that are going to dominate at City Hall, and I think in some respects it's going to be worse this session, because if you know that John Tory is leaving in four years, then you're trying to make a bigger impression because maybe you want to run for mayor or maybe you want to jockey for somebody else for mayor because you hope that they're going to give you some plumb positions. But a group of council members uh, issued a letter yesterday asking questions about violence on the TTC and asking questions about sending in the cops. And this is a very philosophical issue. It's also, you know, bread and butter money issue. 
But it was a half dozen left-leaning council members, and if you want their names, Amber Morley, Gord Perks, Alejandro Bravo, Alejandra Bravo, uh, Asma Malik, Josh Matlow, and Paula Fletcher. And they laid out a series of what they described as urgent questions about the Toronto Police Service deployment of additional officers to patrol the TTC. And while I think there are a lot of issues to be considered, and for example, well, you know what? <laughs> we got to do traffic here and I got to go do television, which you, of course, hear because it's a joint broadcast. Um, but I've got more thoughts on this particular letter and then some columns to talk about. There's a lot going on. All right, time for what Toronto is talking about with News Talk 1010's John Moore. John, good morning. Uh, let's start with this one. Uh, Toronto is set to deploy 50 more security guards on TDC property amid a rash of those violent incidents. And this comes after, you know, their announcement last week to put police officers on the transit system. Yeah, and it would seem, Jennifer, these are going to be 50 security guards who are working for private companies who will be hired on contract. I guess there's some small questions about whether or not this comes out of the police budget or it's more money in the general budget. But 50 security guards who the city insists will have had already daily experience dealing with unhoused people in crisis and they're trained in mental health, first aid, overdose prevention and response. So... Um, you know, I, I think a lot of Torontonians are going to receive this in a mixed way. Mm -hmm. Many are very distressed at the security situation in our city, which now seems unsafe. But also some people are worrying about the, the level of uniformed presence that's now going to be on the TTC. It's, and, you know, you can't have it both ways, but mm -hmm. I can actually understand the perspective. Yeah, it's even kind of jarring to see that B-roll footage of, you know, uniformed officers just patrolling mm -hmm. the TTC. Uh, something we'll have to get used to, I guess. And uh, talking politics now, John, it looks like there will be perhaps potentially some party hopping. Uh, Mike Schreiner, current leader of the Green Party, says he's thinking about running for leader of the Ontario Liberals. This, of course, after they're asking him to think about it. Yeah, letter from 40 leading Liberals, many of whom have been defeated in the two previous election cycles, but they've decided that maybe Mike Schreiner is the fix. He's a very popular guy, but he's leading another party. What's fascinating here is we thought he was going to flatly say no, mm. and he put out a statement yesterday <laughs> saying, I'll think about it. I had a quick chat with him yesterday afternoon. He's joining us on our show at 7.20 this morning. This, for anybody who's fascinated with the drama of politics, mm -hmm. this is an absolutely dramatic development because if he does go what kind of a party does he inherit and what happens to the greens mm, yeah absolutely look during the provincial uh, debate i was very impressed with him because he got something out of doug ford but you know also stephen del duca because he yeah. didn't have any notes so both of them the liberals and the greens okay <laughs> uh turning to this john ontario hospital nurses they're starting their contract talks and they plan on escalating actions they're asking for more things that deadline comes in march they can't strike, but they may start by wearing stickers. And let's face it, I think nurses almost stand alone when it comes to people who work for the government. A lot of people probably don't want the pencil pushers to necessarily launch some sort of an action and demand more money. But when it comes to nurses, they're pretty beloved figures. So the negotiations start today. Um, they're looking for, obviously, more than the 1% they've been held to by the law 124, which has now been overthrown by the courts anyway. Mm -hmm. And actually, all of this may culminate in the month of May when they could end up in binding arbitration.
Mm, okay, interesting to see what happens there. And this is also fascinating, John. Uh, B.C. is the first province to reveal mm -hmm. their plan for decriminalization of small amounts of drugs for personal use. B.C. is kind of a lab, I guess, for coming <laughs> up with tactics that may not fight drug addiction, but at the very least try to address it and keep people a little safer and maybe save some lives. So it started with the safe needle exchange programs. Now they're moving into decriminalization. And an individual over the age of 18 will be allowed to have two. 2.5 grams of opioids such as heroin and fentanyl, as well as cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA. Law and order types don't like this, but in the past, needle exchange programs, to go back and cite that again, have worked at, at the very least saving lives and delaying the, you know, the inevitable and hoping to get people into rehab. Yeah, they really talk about trying to remove that stigma so that people with real addictions uh, don't feel unsafe coming forward and trying to get medical help. All right, John, we'll end with this, something always fun. Uh, some New York City dog walkers are making more than $100,000 per year due to pandemic puppies. I thought you were going to say because they're using the puppies uh, as dog influencers. No, although that's probably the next step. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from Toronto dog walkers, and certainly in my neighborhood, I'll sometimes see people, I think the limit is six at a time, and occasionally I think, yeah, one, two, three, four, five, that's more than six. <laughs> uh, but this particular profile is of New York dog walkers, and you're absolutely right, 23 million American households acquired a dog or a cat during the pandemic. Not all of those were households that didn't have a pet previously, but a lot of them were new. Now people are going back to the office, they don't know what to do. So mm -hmm. in this profile, it's just fascinating that there are people like one woman who wanted to get into public health. And then she said, well, you know, to pay off my student debt, I guess I'll start walking dogs. She won't say how much she's making, but she's making north of $100,000 a year playing with dogs. Wow, that sounds like a pretty sweet job to me. And hey, I have kids, so I know that dogs often behave better than children. So easier than babysitting. <laughs> All right, News Talk 1010's John Moore. Always a pleasure chatting with you. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. Jennifer Sheng over at CP24. And like I said, you know, that's a profile from the New York Times that I clipped out because I wanted to share it with you. And we always like finishing on CP24 with uh, something a little on the lighter side, something I always call a couch topic because I'll look up at the monitor an hour later and all of the people who work on the morning show are sitting there and I can see on the Chiron dog walkers making a fortune. Or actually, Nick, we're going to have to come up with a clever headline. Uh, dog walkers chow down on, no, I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, Dog Walkers Unleashed. How about that? Okay. That's a good one, yeah. All right. Uh, I never would have been a headline writer. I'm sure, well, I'm not sure that there's a headline writer at the Toronto Sun listening, but I always admire their headline writers. I think there's well, some of the cleverest people around. Well, you can always uh, text around. us at 71010. We always welcome your comments. Absolutely. And actually, well, I'd love to hear from some Toronto dog walkers. I don't even know what dog walkers charge because we've never used one. Uh, but one of the people quoted in this article charges uh, $35 for a walk. Another person charges uh, 14 bucks for a 30-minute walk. And then they have all kinds of special programs where they'll promise that they take dog into some sort of a wilderness adventure or they do some puppy training while the dog's out of the house. But it's good money and just more proof of what people will spend on pets. We try to rein it in, but there's a, kind, of a, kind of a high-end dog supply shop just around the corner, and I cannot believe the line of products and, you know, the, the coats and all of that, and it's ridiculous. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 
527 is the time on a Tuesday morning, and definitely things have taken a bit of a colder turn. It's minus 9 right now. I got to go double check it, actually, because I just cast my eyes up at the monitor for CP24 a little while ago, and they were doing the full week projection. But I think it was Thursday is going to be in the double digits below zero. It's not abnormal for this time of year, but we have enjoyed such mild temperatures that it's almost like we have to prepare for this all over again. You know how it works, right? I mean, uh, you throw on a pair of long pants when it hits 10 degrees in the month of October, and in March, if we get to 10 degrees, you break out the shorts. It's just you feel different about the temperature depending on the time of year, and I guess you become acclimatized to it as well. So full uh, long-range forecast coming your way, but let's get back to this issue of safety in our city, but a lot of this seems to be concentrated on the TTC. Well, one of the reasons for that is how major a footprint it has. I wish it had a more major footprint, but we're getting there. We're building the Ontario line, and the uh, Crosstown is going to be opening, but the problem is it's a place where, especially when it's cold, people, the precariously housed or homeless or however you want to describe them, start to take shelter. Some of them get onto a streetcar and just ride around. Some of them will go into a, uh, well, they go into the subway, they'll go into a subway station, they'll lie down on a bench. What I was about to describe was a bit of footage I saw of uh, police officers or security guards, I don't know which it was, but there was a guy who was sprawled on a subway train across two seats and I guess asleep or passed out or whatever. And the police were poking at him. And when I came across that footage in my social media feed, it was being represented as look at this jackboot of oppression and the monstrous behavior toward this poor vulnerable member of our society. And I think in these debates and you know, this is about housing, it's about homelessness, it's about um, public safety. There are, there are a lot of issues converging here. But I think we have to not necessarily find some sort of a middle ground, but there is a degree of monomania. You know, there's those who want these people rousted out of the subway and thrown to the curb. And there are others who, who say, as we saw in a court ruling we discussed at length yesterday, public parks are fair game for somebody to live in. And if somebody doesn't have anywhere to stay warm, then they should be allowed to sprawl across two seats and sleep in a subway car. And I try to, I guess I do try to split the difference in calling for as many measures as possible to look after vulnerable members of our society. But I'm not going to sit here and deny that the fact that every single day now for three weeks, I've had to climb over two or three people to get out of the place where I park my car. And I know that sounds like the height of privilege, um, you know, and there's different ways to interpret it. One is that in a city, you need a degree of public order and people sleeping in the vestibules of uh, facilities and public buildings is simply not accessible. So what we need is, in my theory, we need the short-term solution, which is something. So I support the idea of deploying the police officers to the subway, to the TTC, and um, this acquisition of uh, 50 new people will probably make a difference. I'd like to know how long the contract runs. Um, but that's in order to kind of press the reset button and start 
the process of making the TTC safer. Then you get into the long-term stuff. But it's kind of like guns and gangs. You can build as many basketball courts as you want, but we need, we need to fight this in the, sh in the near term and then come up with the upstreaming. And upstreaming, of course, is figuring out what leads to certain circumstances. How can we prevent them from happening? And if providing a free breakfast for kids in school means that when they're 15, they might not join a gang, then that's upstreaming and that works and it's a great plan. But that's, you know, the kids getting the free meal now, they're turning 15 in 8, 10 years. So, you know, we've got to figure our way around that. So it'll uh, be interesting to see if there's any response from John Tory to this letter from some left-leaning counselors. I'm actually somewhat surprised, I have to say, that there aren't more of them because when I was doing a head count on council, um, I don't think council is necessarily split. I think there are more center and right counselors than left counselors. But then there are also the ones who are, to come back to the phrase, monomaniacs, that, you know, they, they become obsessed with philosophical aspects of running a city as opposed to the practical aspects of running a city. And then there are some who are attention seekers. Adrian Humphreys, writing in the National Post, writes... The city knows what's happening. Toronto's police chief, the mayor, transit bosses all sense it. They see it rumbling on a gray horizon. It's fear, broad public fear. Not only the possibly irrational, but maybe rational anxiety about personal safety in public spaces, particularly in Toronto's essential but maddening transit system. This is a long, long feature. I've sent it to all of our pundits this morning to see what their reaction is. It's a bit more... Uh, of an edgy line on the column that was written by Ed Keenan for the Toronto Star, which I don't think started the discussion, but it was just one of those times where an urban columnist kind of said something out loud and everyone went, exactly, yeah. And he was saying that there is an unease and a malaise in our city, and I don't know where it's, it's coming from necessarily. Like, I don't know why I'm seeing so many more homeless people right now because the economy's on a tear. Now that doesn't mean that every homeless person, many of whom have some pretty significant challenges, are a semester away from being a data entry clerk thanks to George Brown College. But you know, when the economy is doing well, I can't quite understand why all of a sudden homelessness seems to be that much more numerous. And certainly judging by the number of people who are being handled, who are considered to be homeless right now, um, I got to go back to the figures because I kept a big file when I was doing that deep dive. But we used to average at about 6,500, I think. And at the moment, we're, we're pushing toward 10,000 people who are in need of, um, of temporary housing. And maybe that has something to do with what John Burnside, city councilor, was saying yesterday, which is that some jurisdictions are just rounding up the homeless and giving them a bus ticket and saying, go to Toronto, you know, because Toronto's got housing. So you go, you know, go to Toronto, everything's going to be okay. And then, of course, they have no means of ever coming back. And then also, I mean, I learned this decades ago when I was uh, looking at homelessness in San Diego, where it's a particular challenge. And the thing about San Diego is if you were going to be homeless in Buffalo, Better to figure your way to San Diego where sleeping outside is a little bit more comfortable. Subscribe today and always hear the latest episode of The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore.
mentioning Bobby Hull, and this was well before my time, so I've got nothing special to add except that, um, you know, as Bobby Hull is described by his fans. I mean, I can tell you one story, that there is a book that captures his full career and his life in pictures, and he was on tour for that, and he sat in studio with me, and he actually turned every single page one at a time and described every single picture. We were there for like an hour. But Bobby Hull was one of the great all-timers, first NHLer to score over 50 goals in one season. He's passed away at the age of 84, and he's not without controversy. I was mentioning going into the break, you know, do you judge a man by his vocation and his skills and his record, or do you necessarily have to counterbalance that with the potential that they were not a very good person? I mean, Sam Fells writing for Deadspin, the headline tells you everything you need to know. Good riddance, Bobby Hull. His opening line, Bobby Hull was a terrible person. If you're not familiar, incidentally, he was married three times to of his wives accused him of domestic battery. A police officer called to one of those incidents ended up also being assaulted. There's the questionable aspect of whether or not uh, he said some politically controversial things during an interview in Moscow. He denied and threatened lawsuits, but he never actually went ahead and filed those lawsuits. And I know some people would say, don't talk about these terrible things, the man just died. But I've I think you have to be fairly clear-eyed in these things. I remember when Margaret Thatcher died and everybody said, you can't say anything bad about her. Well, what is there this like waiting period during which she's the most uh, you know, gracious, accomplished prime minister in history? What are, what are people going to say about Donald Trump when he's gone? Is there going to have to be this you know, period of mourning during which he was absolutely amazing and never, never a brute? Same thing happened with the, when Pierre Elliott Trudeau died. Yeah, although, you know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, people, I think, had an unhealthy hatred for him. You can hate the politics and you can hate the chaos and you can hate the, the debt and all kinds of other things. But it's those things are, are things you can mention. If you're talking about somebody's political legacy, then knock yourselves out. If you're talking about their character, then is there supposed to be some sort of cooling off period? And I won't dwell on this because there's so many news items today, but uh, I always find it interesting when stories kind of conspire. And Ian Brown, for whom I always have a lot of time because he writes beautiful, lyrical, thoughtful essays for the Globe and Mail, writes about Javanier today and a new study that came out. And if you're not familiar with Jean Vanier, you can be forgiven. Uh, but he created, and my family has an association with this because my sister and her partner have been very close to this organization for decades. It's called Lausch. And the whole idea started in uh, the 1960s. And it was that you would have community housing and people with mental health challenges, uh, mostly people with, uh, who suffered from mental disabilities, uh, would live in group homes and everybody was an equal. So instead of being institutionalized and treated as a lesser, you just all lived together and shared the duties of living together. Jean Vanier, it's impossible to exaggerate, and Ian Brown at one time was part of this, was regarded as a living saint. He was never a priest, but uh, he was certainly within the Catholic Church. But this report is out and says that he abused, sexually abused at least 25 women over a period of seven decades. And 
Ian Brown sort of wrestles with that in this column today. But again, there's the big question, and I'll put it to the pundits. You know, Javanier accomplished something magnificent with Lausch, but it turns out that he was a rogue. Uh, Bobby Hull was magic as a hockey player. Also in his youth, um, a staggeringly good-looking guy. I don't know if you've uh, seen the images. There's one very, very famous one. I think he's throwing hay around. I don't remember precisely, but he's got his shirt off. And it was not a normal thing up until Marky Mark for a guy to be stacked like that uh, back in, in his day. Um, let's get back to domestic issues, and everything seems to conspire again these days to be about public safety. Uh, an article today about how some people, when they get into taxis now and give a location of where they want to go, the taxi driver says, okay, I want you to put down a deposit on this ride before we go there. Now, my first thought when I saw this was, oh, it's a dangerous neighborhood. The taxi driver thinks that there should be some sort of a premium if they're going to the neighborhood neighborhood because um, something bad might happen. But actually what this is about is the doubt if you are going to that neighborhood that you're going to be good for the ride. So they want you to pay up front. And it's actually, you know, Christine Hubbard, operations manager at Beck Taxi, says that since 2016, it's been legal for a taxi driver to ask for a deposit up to $25. So, you know, I don't know what my thoughts on this are because with all due respect to Christine Hubbard and all the taxi drivers listening right now, um, I don't tend to take taxis anymore because I've been in Toronto for 20 years and I've had almost nothing but bad experiences. And then along came Uber and, you know, I don't know that I've ever had a bad Uber experience, except in the early days when people used to yak um, on the phone. Uh, but that, you know, they seem to have taken care of that. So it's 5.53 Let's take a short break and then set up our next half hour. Who's going to be here? Tim Hudak is going to be here on the morning brief. And the, this is just one of those days where there's an awful lot of, as we like to call them, debatables. So I think we're going to mix it up. That is The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.